This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... The True Names Atlas Challenge. Stakes and Conflict. Iconic Negotiation. And Nazi UFOs. The swooping CGI reticule of latitude and longitude tell us that we have entered a slightly upmarket, slightly better CGI version of Cartography Hut, perhaps for its second season. In the Cartography Hut today, we are going to play the Atlas of True Names Challenge. And Robin, why don't you explain to the folks at home what that is? So there's a series of books which we will link to on the site. They are the Atlas of True Names series, and uh, what the publishers of these have done is they have taken actual maps of the uh, globe and then of Europe and Canada and uh, now the United States and relabeled them with the literal meanings of all the place names. So the Canadian one has like a variation of the village of small huts is the name of Canada instead of Canada, because very famously when the uh, first French explorers came over and said, what is the name of this land? And they gestured expansively around them, and the Native Americans who uh, met them thought that they were gesturing just to the village and said, oh, well, that's the village of small huts, Canada, uh, which became the name of Canada. And so if you look around the globe at your various maps, uh, in some cases, the names of places are still recognizable names in your language, like the Narrows uh, is a narrow strip between two lakes near my hometown, but other place names are not necessarily readily understood that way, and so they've gone back and created literal versions of the names and put them all over the map. And obviously, if one is a nitpicker, one will probably buy one of these atlases and find alternate translations that you might prefer to be in this place or that place. But I thought for the purpose of this segment that we would ignore all of that and use these as fun inspiration for an imaginary world, because if you take away the real world names and replace them with evocative names that no longer remind you of the places, you can take that map and use it as an imaginary world. So Ken and I are going to throw names at each other as if we are alternately GMs and adventurers uh, walking across uh, this imaginary set of places, and the GM is going to tell the player uh, what he beholds there. So we're springing these names on one another by surprise. So Ken, what happens when I, as a doughty adventurer slogging my uh, pack with my swords and my various magic items and potions ready for resale later through the wilderness and come across the town of Water Forest? What do I find in Water Forest? In Water Forest, there is uh, a beautiful sylvan uh, glade. First of all, it's barely a town at all when you first see it. It sort of resembles uh, the Ewok village, but uh, less... Twee, there's uh, definitely heavy industry going here, but it's all the sort of sawmills and lumber uh, production, but it's all driven by the uh, the falls that are coming through the forest. The, the river and the forest have sort of blended out, and you suspect that perhaps the uh, naiads and the dryads have got some sort of relationship by marriage around he- around these parts, and that the uh, the people have taken advantage of that, as people will, 
to uh, build sawmills, but the sawmills are built in some cases into enor- the roots of enormous trees. Um, that's what a uh, water forest looks like. And do I get a positive sense from water forest? Do I think that I will receive a good welcome when I come here? If you are uh, willing to work hard or swing an axe, I think that the people of water forest can find a role for you. However, you suspect that there are strange taboos in how you must treat the trees, since although they are sawing them up, uh, also it is obvious that this is a place where the trees sort of you know, set the, uh, set the tone and, and rule the roost. So I sense an aura of druidic power about this place? May have druidic power, indeed. Or, uh, at the very least, a a human who is capable of working with dryads and naiads, which is not easy at the best of times. Well, it just so happens that I have a bone to pick with some naiads, and there's one that I'm uh, looking to track down. So maybe I will, uh, in a polite and deferential way, uh, extremely respectful of not only the trees but all other plant life, go uh, politely nosing around to see if I can uh, find this naiad who I know is somewhere in these parts. So Ken, uh, hit me with a place name and I will tell you, uh, other Doughty adventurer, mm-hmm. what details it portends. As I, uh, as I descend the, the ridgeline, I behold below me Bright Helmet's farm. Can you tell me something about Bright Helmet and or... Their farm? What is it? What is the vista that is revealed to my eyes? It is well known that Bright Helmet was a, a great warrior who led an army a generation ago and sowed the plains of this land with the blood of his enemies. And he was uh, remarkable for his cruelty. But at one pivotal moment, uh, at the height of battle, a bolt, a divine energy, came from the heavens. The heavens parted, the lights came down, and they uh, struck. Dark Helmet, as he was then known, and changed him on the spot into a Bright Helmet, who then became an exemplar and paragon of peace in all of its forms. And he declared the war over and decided that he would, uh, as penance, after making a peace with his former enemies, retire here to his farm. So this is a place where, uh, again, uh, you mentioned taboos earlier with uh, Water Forest. Uh, you suspect there are some rather heavy taboos here at Bright Helmet's farm. Do I sense that Bright Helmet is ready to, uh, to resist invasion of his farm if there's uh, barbarians or orcs uh, afoot? Do you think Bright Helmet can do it, or do you think he's sunk too deeply into his, um, his, his new vows and his new pursuits? You see no fortifications whatsoever. Mm. You see no armed men. In fact, the farmers that you spot out in the field, uh, they're currently making furrows in which to plant, and you see that even the edges of their hoes have been dulled to an edge where they cannot be used as weapons. Mm. So either this is protected by great magic or Bright Helmet is due for an ugly surprise when he hears the news that I have to tell him. And what news do you have for Bright Helmet? Well, I have, uh, sadly, the news that his um, uh, his ancient foe is once more uh, stalking the land and is uh, raising up reavers and bandits to um, uh, pillage and loot the landscape, and that Bright Helmet is next on his list. Ah, well, meanwhile, I'm very interested in knowing, as I continue on after Water Forest, I've been told that the naiad I'm looking for lies in Headstone Town. What would I find in Headstone Town? Headstone Town is far... Obviously, it's it's away from the, the, the general water course of Water Forest because of the graves that understandably festoon Headstone Town. Headstone Town began as an enormous uh, cemetery 
perhaps millennia ago, not all the graves are human graves, but all of them have their own cenotaphs, their own mausoleos, crypts, headstones around, and over that have assembled uh, ghouls, but not the uh, creepy, paralyzy ghouls, the sort of dreamlandsy type ghouls that uh, go back and forth to the moon and to other places. It's also, there's a, there's a large body of feral cats that look fairly unpleasantly well-fed for cats that wander around a graveyard the whole time. It is a place with a lowering frisson of danger, but not an immediate aura, if you will, of evil. It is the sort of place that, uh, however, could turn on a dime or perhaps at the dark of the moon into a very, very fell place indeed. Am I correct in my suspicion that these are the sorts of ghouls who eat only the dead and have mores in place that prevent them from making you dead, even, no matter how tasty you might look? Well, no matter how tasty you might look is perhaps um, uh, pushing it a little bit. They, they certainly have those mores, and you can tell by the uh, sumptuous offerings of penitence and forgiveness that are left at the largest mausoleum in, in Headstone Town that they feel really bad when they violate those mores. Hmm, let me see. Well, I still need to find that naiad, so uh, I'm going to go a little further into Headstone Town and look for some sign of a meeting place, some place where they would feel especially moved to hospitality. Do I perceive anything like that? It is uh, very possible that the sort of central, what do I want to say? It's, it's like a bowl-shaped depression. It's ringed around again with, with headstones, but in the middle of it, there's sort of a flat spot. So either it is the grave of something very large and very round, or it is an open spot that is left free of the voices of the dead so that the voices of the living can be heard. That might be your best chance to, to get a hearing that does not involve asking you exactly how you feel about sage dressing. Right. Well, before I head along there, do I see any bodies of water around Headstone Town where a naiad might be lurking, just so I don't have to go and uh, risk this colloquy with the ghouls? There are um, uh, there are no bodies of water immediately near Headstone Town, though there are a number of reflecting pools, some of which seem really very deep for reflecting pools in a, uh, in a cemetery or a necropolis. Well, I think I might uh, wander over there, so let's get back to uh, your adventure and uh, see where he's headed. Okay. Robin, as you, uh, or as I, rather, as, as I uh, continue my way past uh, Bright Helmet's land, I am, I am told that only in the land of Lightstone might I find uh, succor that I can uh, use to interpose between Bright Helmet's farm of peace and the oncoming threat. What is Lightstone, uh, the, the country of Lightstone, like uh, to my eyes? Lightstone is a wondrous place where the stones are, as the name suggests, lighter than air and have therefore been used as a building material of uh, great beauty and subtlety. So as you cross the ridgeline in which uh, the sort of hills of uh, Lightstone become visible, you start to see all of these different buildings floating in the air from the sort of tiny... Uh, stone floating hovels that uh, ring the city to an inner level of more elaborate structures. And all the way up the sort of hill, you see these uh, stones hovering mostly about 10 to 20 feet off the air. And then sort of around the pinnacle of this mountain, or well, it's, it's sort of in between a hill and a mountain, one way or the other, uh, you see these incredible uh, palaces of uh, stone, and some of them sort of have the original sort of pumicey stone surfaces, and, and others have been uh, worked to a high sheen of polish. And there are uh, there's a 
high wind blowing and colorful banners flap from all but the most modest of these light stone houses. Uh, is there a, uh, again, uh, thinking of their possibility as puissant defenders of Bright Helmet and, and his good and simple people, do I get the sense that somewhere in the, in this, uh, veritable fairyland there is a keep or, uh, or a battlement somewhere that the defenders of Lightstone might be approached and asked for their aid in the coming uh, brigand wars? Stretching your neck up, way, way up, you see that Floating even higher than the city itself are these great circular stone pads from which bristle uh, turrets and parapets. You see uh, soldiers parading, and you see great uh, ballistae and uh, possibly fire throwers as well. So you uh, see that the uh, land of Lightstone is one of great aerial war capacity. Ah, well, I, I sense that uh, that will be the uh, place that I need to apply my queries uh, going forward, and I look around for a dangling rope or, or liana vine or perhaps a cunningly arranged set of heavier stones that become the bottom of a, of a, of a moving staircase that, that, that carry me up to that castle. Uh, you find exactly that, and uh, you are only charged a small fee as an outlander for making use of them. That seems uh, uh, eminently reasonable, especially since I suspect they mentioned the fee while I'm halfway up in the air. Meanwhile, I've uh, made my way away from Headstone Town without being eaten by ghouls, and I did speak to the naiad in the pool there and was sent along to the Firth of Silence. What do I find when I... Uh, enter the misty realm of the Firth of Silence. Well, you find a great deal of mist, as you have uh, suspected, rising from a lengthy uh, em embayment or fjord, whatever you want to call it. Firth, I guess, is what you might call it. Uh, sticking into the land between towering, beetling cliffs, surrounded by conifers that almost come up to the edge of the cliffs. The whole uh, thing looks like it was simply cut out of the side of, of the coastline by the blade of a god. And you can vaguely hear the, the roaring of breakers at the edge of the Firth of Silence beating on the headland there. But within the Firth of Silence, all is literally silent. But as you look down at the bottom of the Firth of Silence, there are large things moving about beneath the peat-filled waters of the Firth. Could you uh, maybe detail the word things a bit for me? Well, um, if you thought of something that was serpentine where it was not octopoid and shark-like where it was neither of those two things, you might begin to get the sense, but more office building size than accessible. This is somewhat concerning to me, for these are clearly beings, of, if not beings of water, beings strongly affiliated with water and are perhaps the defenders of this naiad that I've come to hunt. Uh, do I know anything about the, the lore of these creatures? Well, the lore of these things is that where they, uh, where they congregate, where they, where they dwell, is their spawning ground, and that they can only interact with each other in an area of perfect magical silence, because they are so quick to anger, so bloody-minded, that the tiniest stimulus sets them off. That is one of the reasons, perhaps, that one cannot even approach the edges of the Firth, as you're looking down from high up on the hillside as you are, because if you even tossed a single rock into the Firth, it might set them roiling and tearing at each other, and of course then the blood frenzy would set in, and no one likes a blood frenzy. So I don't have the sense that there's a magical sound-dampening aura or anything, that if I went there and started asking them questions, I would therefore 
be making noises and doubtless would be devoured by these terrible creatures. And if I had the rest of my adventuring party with me, perhaps I might be willing to tackle a small one, but uh, not if I'm traveling by myself. No, the the, the sound dampening is either a divine feature of this specific firth and perhaps just of the surface of the firth. The only way to find out if you make noise would be to go down to the edge and start shouting, but that sadly is one of those experiments that might uh that that, <laughs> that might prove uh unpublishable for the most mundane of reasons right so it's not like i'm seeing a bunch of people around who are talking in sign language or doing things that might otherwise create noise but i'm seeing that the noise is not being generated that the right. uh could easily be an easily disturbed silence now on the other side of the firth there is a semaphore flag flying from what looks like a, a tower with no windows uh, perhaps whoever maintains that tower might have left you some guidance to work by. Uh, well, I'm going to uh, head over to the tower, and we're going to cut back to your travels. Okay. I have uh, left the Land of Lightstone with promises of aerial aid, and so now I must make my way through the Count's Hedge on my way to uh, back to uh, the, the Land of Brighthelm to tell him that uh, aid is on its way. I don't know this Count, and I'm suspicious of his hedge. Robin, am I right to be so? Uh, you are right to be so, because as you approach the hedge, you see that although from a distance it conveys a quite naturalistic illusion of being made from your typical hedge materials, your shrubberies and so forth, that as you draw closer, you see that it's actually a finely wrought uh, metal and that the leaves and edges of the uh, hedge are extremely sharp, and you suspect that this is uh, a fortification in a land that you found somewhat lacking in fortification, and perhaps one that you uh, are going to have to mess around with very carefully in order to find a way to pass it, because in fact, the Count's Hedge extends as far to the east and west as the eye can see. Mm. Um, are there any uh, gardeners or vergers who are there uh, keeping the hedge intact? Does it seem like it's kept intact uh, by magical use? Is the hedge trimmed, or does it grow wild and uh, dangerous-looking? In the middle distance, you see a hunched figure uh, clipping away at the hedge, which, of course, implies that these sharp metal edges do grow and need to be maintained. And as you draw closer to him, you see that, uh, again, whereas... From a distance, the hedge looked natural, uh, and uh, closer up, it looked artificial. You see that this man is an extremely well-painted, uh, well-maintained automaton. An automaton, eh? Uh, fortunately, uh, my experiences in Lightstone have given me a perhaps uh, unwarranted sense of confidence in my technic abilities. So I perhaps will approach the automaton in hopes that I can either trick or persuade him to show me a way through the hedge. Hail, meat unit, it says. <laughs> I, I begin uh, my, my much-practiced uh, patter of uh, friendship and uh, lulling of people into uh, good feelings while I look around for a keyhole or wind-up section on him, because that is traditionally where one can access the cogs, gears, and punch cards that make automata do their things. Your emotional perambulation shall avail you not. And I urge you not to look in my forbidden places, <laughs> lest I command the hedge to deal with thee. This, uh, this may take a little rethinking, so I may have to back uh, away, keeping my hands and eyes firmly in sight and firmly away from the edges of the metal hedge, while I ponder 
my path back to Brighthelm. Uh, so there you go. There is our exercise in riffing on the Atlas of True Names. So this seems like a really fun resource for fantasy make ups and uh, we recommend it for that purpose. now the light clacking of fingertips on the keyboard and the unmistakable aura of flop sweat tell us once again we've entered the segment we call How to Write Good. Uh, This is a segment in which we discuss uh, writing and creative narrative. And this time I I thought that we would look at some terms that you hear a lot uh, and sometimes I think hear in a way that does not really delve underneath the surface of why they are important. And those terms are stakes and conflict. We are often told as we create narratives that conflict is the base, most important element of any traditional narrative, especially in the uh, English or European tradition, but we're not always told why that is. And before I propose my reason for why conflict is important for engagement, uh, Ken, uh, what do you have to say on the matter? As with everything about literary theory, I start with Aristotle, and if he's right, which he almost always is, I don't see a lot of reason uh, to look elsewhere. Aristotle says that uh, the story of any of any drama, of any by which he means a tragedy, is a story of something that is broken, something that has gone wrong, either in the hero, usually, or sometimes in the hero's universe, in the hero's family, and that that breaking, the the edges of that breaking are where the story takes place, because that's where you find the catharsis, the emotional payout, when that break either destroys the hero or destroys the hero's surroundings. And it's at that break that you have to find the conflict, that agon, as uh, Aristotle puts it. So I think that the reason that we say conflict is necessary is because we have found, I guess, experimentally, that stories without conflict generally don't engage us. That Literally, they don't have anywhere for us to get a purchase and follow it forward, just like if you're watching... Um, uh, any sporting event, you can immediately start rooting for one side or the other, even if you've never heard of, um, you know, soapbox derby or shuffleboard or whatever. Once you sort of figured out who the two players are, you can get a, a stake in that, in that, in that, uh, contest. But if you watch a dance recital, it's harder to, to immediately care about the activity as opposed to try to appreciate it aesthetically. Right. And the reason that that is, I think, if you, look at what engages us as viewers or readers is, as you suggest, that we want to have a side that we identify with. And once you start to identify uh, with a person or with a group of people, as is the case in a sports uh, contest most of the time, you then have a forked set of consequences. And here's where we get to a thing that I always say, which is that if you look at the sort of scene-by-scene, moment-to-moment construction of any narrative that really engages you, you will see that it moves your emotional needle uh, either up toward hope uh, and down toward fear. And what that means in this context is that there is something that you hope is going to happen and there's something that you fear is going to happen, and those things are usually the opposite of one another. So that in the case of, say, 
Macbeth, you hope that Macbeth is somehow going to uh, redeem himself, or if not, that his uh, increasingly terrible reign is going to come to an end and he's going to receive his comeuppance as he moves from being a tragic hero to more and more of an anti-hero. So at any moment in Macbeth, there's, there's something that you want to have happen and there's something you don't want to have happen and what those things are spring out of the essential conflict of whatever it is. And for an even simpler example, you do not have to have conflict between people. You can have a conflict between a person and an inanimate object. So at the beginning of the first uh, Indiana Jones movie in Raiders of the Lost Ark, there's a conflict between Indiana Jones and that network of traps, including the big rolling ball. And what you hope will happen is that Indy will get away from the traps and you know virtually nothing about him at this point or really what the wider consequences of what he's doing are. But because the scene is, first of all, very well realized and because there's a very sharp set of consequences, we immediately start to engage with that story. Now, one thing that the term stakes, I think, is often overused because especially if you're getting uh, notes from people, sometimes an easy uh, and therefore dumb thing to say is, well, why can't you raise the stakes? And often that makes the piece less interesting if you say, well, ultimately this is about saving the world. Well, often a much more personal stake, uh, what a protagonist stands to gain from a situation can be just as compelling, even if it is a scene basically of emotional conflicts. For example, if you're looking at a literary realist story about the breakup of a marriage, you have a hope for how that conflict will be resolved between the married couple. And it might be that you hope that they separate and find happiness or that they stay together and reconcile. But it is the uh, not just a conflict and not just a sense of stakes that makes narrative engaging, but that sense of good and bad consequences that flows from any conflict or any set of stakes. And I, I think that in your, in your example with the, the literary narrative of the divorce and Macbeth, Part of what makes those work, uh, and let's presume that the literary narrative of the divorce does, is that your hopes are in themselves in conflict. In Macbeth, your example, that you hope he gets out from under the curse, and you also hope that he gets his comeuppance for truckling with, uh, with, with his wife's uh, murderous ambitions. Those two hopes are themselves in conflict, and they're in conflict also within Macbeth. So you... Not just you identify with Macbeth in the sense that the play's named after him and he's played by the best-looking, most famous actor, but you identify with him because you have the same dueling hopes that Macbeth sort of has inside Macbeth and that other characters in the story have, that there's the action on stage or the action on the page or the action on the screen is mirrored by the action in the viewer, inside the viewer, as you're saying, you know, gosh, I hope um, Iron Man can beat those robots, but I also hope that he learns to appreciate Gwyneth Paltrow, or whatever your your mutual hopes are. And a good narrative isn't just, you know, gosh, I hope Tarzan can punch out those ivory traders. You have another hope going on, and with Ed Grice Burroughs, usually it's a, it's a subplot. I also hope that the uh, tame lion can get through, and I hope that Jane can get outside of the quicksand pit, and I hope blah, blah, blah. But in, I, I guess, literary fiction, or literarily intended fiction, your twin hopes and your twin fears, or multiple hopes and multiple fears, with a really nested uh, braided narrative or nested braided character, are echoed inside the action and ideally inside the main character 
who you are, in theory, identifying with. Right. And what you're talking about here now is sort of a higher level of a complex long-form narrative. And uh, indeed, yes, that you want to have both morally complicated stakes and you want to have multiple stakes that thread amongst one another in order to sustain interest. And you can also have stakes that evolve or change over the course of the storyline so that uh, you may be rooting for one thing to happen in Act 1, but at the end of Act 1, circumstances radically change, or perhaps your perception of the leading character radically change, and you're forced to shift or alter your sense of the fear and hope of, of good and bad consequences as the narrative develops. On the flip side, though, for short-form fiction, often I find, as someone who looks at a lot of short stories, that often the problem is that there is an attempt to do too much in short too short a space, and that really what you want to do when you're looking at a short-form narrative, uh, an episode of television I think would work the same way, is to make sure that your one or two things are very simple, and you also want to ascertain that they're introduced really early on. And one thing that I think has changed in literary taste as we have sped up in general in culture is that I think people have less patience for long preludes that basically just sort of quietly invest you in a situation in the status quo without introducing at least some low-level element of a possible good or bad outcome and some sort of nascent conflict for people to latch onto. And you can sort of look back at older forms where they give themselves the leisure, uh, which went with a more leisurely world of setting things up for a while before really introducing those things. But now, especially in a short-term work, like a short story, you want to introduce those stakes and get the reader engaged and uh, have them wondering what's going to happen next and have that emotional commitment to it as soon as you can. So if you have a story that you feel is not really cohering or, or working together, something that feels like sort of a series of incidents that don't really connect up. It's just an and-then narrative rather than a story that introduces something at the beginning and resolves it at the end. The thing to do is to step back and say, uh, what are the stakes and what do I expect the reader to be feeling about this character here on page one and here on page three and here on page five and do those things all track? Do they match up? Or am I waiting until page 11 to introduce the thing that makes you care? Well, some of that also is just the, you know, constraints of the form. Uh, Boccaccio's Decameron is a bunch of short stories, and they are no more or less languid than uh, John Cheever, and I would say considerably less languid than John Cheever's short stories are. Uh, they introduce an immediate conflict in the sense that, you know, there's a guy who wants to have sex with someone he's not supposed to, and you're already invested in, is he going to get to, and how embarrassed is everyone going to get by the end of it? You're, you have, uh, to an extent, the, the constraints of the form should, as you say, drive when you introduce the conflict to what degree you elaborate the conflict, I think a short story obviously can have just as multi-layered and just as dense and just as emotionally taught and uh, conflict in the conflict as a novel can, uh, potentially at least. Certainly the great short stories manage to do that somehow. I think that in general, sort of looking at the architecture of the form I mean, in a way, this comes back to our, our television discussion, that people think that the form in a television series is the season or the series when they need to, in my opinion, remember that the form begins as the episode. And I think that your 
uh, you're obviously you're correct in that the longer the form you have, the more space you have to lay down a, a, a background or establish a setting or create an emotional tone or provide backstory and prologue and prelude. And then only, you know, in, in, the, in sort of the second act turn in the novel or, or movie or television series, do you introduce the, the, the first real conflict as opposed to the sort of micro conflicts that have been sort of tuggling along. And you can see that certainly in, in sort of the observational realist novels of the 19th century, where you spend pages and pages and pages just sort of figuring out how that character responds in normal times before throwing the fastball at him. It's sort of the equivalent of the, of the James Bond opening sequence, where this is how James Bond solves a problem he knows how to ha- solve. Now let's throw a bunch of problems he doesn't know how to solve at him. Right, and I think that's absolutely true in a critical sense, but in, in terms of our how to write good lens, if we're yeah. assuming a, a writer who is learning their craft, that what you want to do is you want to start off with one clear conflict and understand what the stakes of that are and what the positive and negative consequences of that are before you start layering in other levels of complexity. That That, that is your baseline. And then, indeed, hopefully you will find ways to make that complicated and more interesting as you vary it over the course of either a short story or a novel or a play or whatever it is, but that knowing what your story is in terms of its conflict level, knowing when the conflict shifts, knowing when the sense of the stakes shifts, and knowing when you expect the reader's emotional attachments to shift is very important. And so one suggestion that I uh, give and use myself when I am concerned that I am losing my place in a narrative that I'm outlining is to set out the following construction, which is this story is a story of a woman who dot, 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 or this is a story of a man who dot, 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 or this is a story of a robot who dot, dot, dot. And that can be whatever it is, but you have a sentence then when you complete it, you know, this is a story of a man who uh, doesn't realize where his home is until he loses it. Or this is a story uh, of a uh, woman who overthrows the corrupt order or whatever your one sentence is, that sentence in each case will imply the conflict, which you can then set out in more detail. And then as you construct each individual moment, uh, as you introduce that situation and develop it, you can always keep in your mind what fits in this story. You know, the old joke is uh, if you want to carve an elephant out of a block of marble, you take a block of marble and you carve away everything that doesn't look like an elephant. And this is basically your guideline to know ahead of time what the elephant looks like in your story. Yeah, I think that certainly a, a simplicity of narrative is not necessarily a unsophisticated narrative. I'm London story to build a fire, which tells you right in that in the title what it's going to be a story about, and it is just about that. It is also a masterpiece of literature, but the conflict couldn't be any more simple and any more straightforward. And it's the way that London just sort of lays out, and he doesn't sort of uh, add complications as much as he just intensifies the original conflict. And that's something that I've found when I was writing a story for the Madness on the Orient Express. It's like, this is the story of a woman who is cursed. That's what the, um, uh, you know, my dot, dot, dot was. Right, and that immediately introduces the conflict. We know that she is in conflict with her curse, and that immediately introduces our hope, which is that she somehow escapes the curse, and her fear, which is that she won't. Right, and then every interaction 
that she has during the course of the story has to either reflect or uh, react to the fundamental curse that she's under. And you can't have a lot of, you know, side quests in here to talk about the backstory of other secondary characters or, or whatever. Everything either has to elaborate the woman or the curse. You, you can't keep, you know, uh, you know, going off the rails, literally, in, in this case. Right. And some people would argue that it is important to have an exploratory phase in which you just sit down and write a bunch of stuff and explore your characters and the situations. And then over a, a perhaps arduous revision process, you finally wind up many, many drafts later of boiling it down to whatever it is that it wants to be after you had that exploratory phase. So for people who uh, prefer or need to work in that way, it's not that they are not asking those questions of themselves, but that they're having a much longer exploratory phase before they buckle down. And at this point, they would be examining big chunks of written prose and asking themselves, does this fit the conflict? Does this express the stakes? Does this allow the reader to engage on a level of hope and fear? And so I guess essentially that is our takeaway, is that at some point in the process, you're going to have to ask yourself these questions. And if you have difficulty with a narrative that doesn't seem to want to cohere or doesn't give you the sense of uh, unity that you are looking for, the practical suggestion that we're giving you is to go back and answer all of those questions for yourselves and then look at the passage that is troublesome. And almost invariably, it will be that it either has stepped away from those questions entirely or has muddied the way that they are supposed to track. The bit where you write out uh, a, gr a great amount of prose about your character and find out what the central conflict was, what their dot, dot, dot is, is akin, I think, to if someone s comes to you and says, write me a Sherlock Holmes story. Right? You, you know what Sherlock Holmes is. You've got that sort of part has all been written out, in this case, by Arthur Conan Doyle. But you don't know what the dot, dot, dot is in this case. You know that Sherlock Holmes is a man who wants to see justice done or to see crimes solved, but you don't know what specifically it's about. And so the process of coming up with that kind of story, which I think is the kind of process that we come up with a great deal as game masters as well as uh, genre fiction writers, is it, it's very similar to that, that you have to f sort of spend a lot of time in, in, you know, in a Sherlock Holmes case, reading other Sherlock Holmes stories or thinking about Sherlock Holmes or trying to come up with a good specific instance of seeing justice done or seeing a crime solved or maybe bringing those two things into conflict the way that, that happens a great deal in, in Sherlock Holmes stories. Uh, and then come up with the way that your Sherlock Holmes does this or the conditions under which your Sherlock Holmes does this. And in a, in a similar sense, I think that if you're you, if you have a character that you really like, but you don't know what their dot, dot, dot is, it's the same sort of process. Exactly so. Well, now we've given everybody an assignment for their works in progress, which is to uh, go back, complete that sentence, understand what the personal stakes are, uh, what the good and bad consequences are, and why those arise from conflict to engage the reader.
It's time once again to Ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Jeffrey Nelson asks Ken and Robin. In a procedural RPG with iconic rather than dramatic characters, what are some good ways to play out conflicts between characters that don't involve the digging in of heels? If iconic characters exist to put right disorder by being true to themselves, how can they have meaningful interpersonal conflicts in a game without everything devolving into a pissing match or a punch-up? Robin, do you have uh, immediate responses to this that do not (laughs) evolve dodging the question or saying, what's wrong with a punch-up? Well, I think it absolutely is a real problem in a lot of role-playing gaming, and most role-playing gaming, as we've discussed on the podcast previously, is iconic procedural play. And so the question is, how do you allow conflict to exist between the characters, which is reinforcing to play rather than destructive of play. And we've all probably had sessions where players dig in their heels. Uh, often it is the player uh, digging in his or her heels and and thinking that that is great uh, role-playing, uh, but it does stop the story dead. And so the question is, uh, let's look at some sources of iconic characters who are also ensemble characters and look at how they conflict with one another and how they don't, and then see how to emulate that. So, for example, unlike role-playing, you most often see a single protagonist or a protagonist with a sidekick rather than an ensemble of people who are solving a problem while being in conflict with one another, but there are examples. Uh, Star Trek, of course, is a big example of ensemble iconic problem solving, and in that case, although McCoy is often at odds with Spock, those contrasts that express their individual iconic natures occur within within limits, and they are not permitted to stop the storyline dead. So McCoy, expressing his cranky humanist essential self, uh, will throw zingers at Spock, but uh, it's unthinkable in Star Trek that McCoy would just go, well, screw you guys, I'm not going down to the planet because of this uh, pointy-head Vulcan's plan. I'm just going to sit here. Uh, that doesn't happen. Now, there's a command structure so that even if you're playing Star Trek, that you can have the captain player order the recalcitrant player to start acting more like a Star Trek player and get ahead with the program and only sort of chip in zingers rather than stopping the action. Or, you know, for a less command structure thing, the Fantastic Four is one of the sort of uh, iconic superhero groups. And again, there's a level of bickering between a couple of the uh, characters, and you've had soap opera storylines over the years where, you know, the Invisible Woman uh, gets divorced from Reed Richards and then comes back later or whatever it is. But none of those things stop the storyline. So what I would suggest that, for example, let's say that you've got two paladins of radically different deities, uh, there's one question that you want to resolve at the very start of play, which is, why do these diametrically opposed guys hang out with each other anyway? What is it that they like about each other or care about each other or need from one another to require them to get along and occasionally give in to the other person? And The next question then, once you get to that conflict where the paladin of the war god wants to go ahead and start arming uh, the forces to uh, protect that uh, foolish General Brighthelm who won't protect himself and the uh, deity (laughs) of the, yeah, and the the cleric of the peace god wants to have, uh, you know, go off and have peace talks, that you ask the players to frame what they're doing in terms of something that 
sends the narrative moving forward rather than just stopping it dead, which is what generally tends to happen when players find themselves at loggerheads. I think that to an extent, you can also perhaps, and again, this the, these questions all presume that the players are not actively trying to sabotage the game, that the sabotage is happening as a perhaps unforeseen consequence of, the, of their activities. So in that light, I would suggest that it's not impossible to introduce a little bit of drama system flavor into an iconic character standoff or punch them down in your Kirk's, uh, in your Spock McCoy example. The answer is what Kirk wants happens. So maybe both of the paladins have agreed that whenever they're at loggerheads, they turn to the wise old wizard or the simple halfling who is in touch with the earth and listen to his words of wisdom. Or maybe you just have a system where you've agreed on a meta level that everyone gets one fight that they're going to win during the course of this quest. And if they put in their chip, you can still play out the big, the big screaming fight and have a good role-playing moment of, uh, damn you and your pacifistic nonsense, you're going to get Brighthelm killed, I tell you, killed! But I'll go along with it this once, but don't ask me to save you, or whatever. And then the next time around, it's going to be the, the Paladin of the War God's time to, um, uh, to win the argument, quote-unquote. And you can have that uh, broken out either by, you know, who does, you know, the best role player. You can have it just broken out on a sheer spotlight level basis. Every player gets a turn to win. Or you can have some in-game system where you do a quick dice off and it's like, okay, you guys are having a throwdown. Everyone, you know, roll charisma or roll a uh, fast talk or whatever it is. And the winner is the guy who's going to win this scene. Play it that way. I think that taking that kind of story game or that kind of drama system uh, note and taking it into your traditional game of iconic play is going to enrich that iconic play. And just as McCoy doesn't become less human whenever Spock gets his way in a fight or Spock become uh, a wuss once McCoy gets his way in an argument, your iconic characters remain true to themselves even, and I think that perhaps in an iconic character sense, this is even more important, even when things don't immediately go their way in the short term. Right. You may just create the consensus that the will of the group is ultimately more important than the will of any individual member of the group, and that what you do is you have the, the two characters duke it out, the war paladin and the peace paladin each makes their arguments with one another, and then the group as a whole then decides whose argument seems best, and that the convention then is that the person who the decision goes against grudgingly exceeds, while of course, perhaps, you know, waiting for the moment of vindication when it's proved that they should have made peace or they should have made war or uh, whatever it is. If you have an even number of players in the group, that's a little uh, trickier to put to a vote at the end, but that's the point where the GM can then sort of uh, pop in and be the additional vote that determines uh, which way the the group consensus goes. And as you suggest, if, if we are assuming a group of people who do not just want to sabotage the game or for whose personal sense of control and mastery is more important than everyone else's enjoyment of the game, is if we set those examples aside, um, that uh, if you just make that part of the deal to begin with, there's a group of people who all ultimately want to be in a group together, want to do the same things, and they sometimes disagree about tactics, but they have a conflict resolution method in place to deal with those, uh, and only in the very most extreme circumstances is one person going to 
break away from the group or refuse to go on rather than just doing their best to go along with a plan that they don't particularly care for, I think that will allow the iconic characters to express their iconic selves uh, in an interesting way that makes foils of the other characters and doesn't require them to not roleplay their characters well because you've built into the very concept the idea that they in addition to being iconic characters, they're also ensemble characters who care about each other and care about the success of the group. And again, I, I don't want to... Um, uh, I was being a little facetious earlier, but I think the notion of the punch-up as a decision-making system is under underappreciated. It, it's how King Arthur's knights solve things. Is like, oh, Lancelot wants one thing, Gawain wants another thing. Well, have at you, and the first guy to fall is the guy who lost. Uh, what, what you need for that, though, is a rule system that robustly handles fights between uh, player characters, and uh, not all of them, for example, Dungeons & Dragons, works that well for that. So you have to come up with a symbolic conflict that each character who's a party to the fight has a roughly equal chance of resolving or you know you get the sort of classic situation where if the, if the fighter hits the wizard first yeah that 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 um, uh, that works better in in the conflict between two paladins than between the the, the paladin and the halfling rogue i think exactly uh, so i think we have uh, answered yet another question and it's time to move on to our uh, exciting frosty and airborne final segment The red-eyed glare of the alien big cat looking at us through the window and the portrait of the alien gray up on the walls indicates that we've entered once more the confines of the Elliptony Hut. And you may be saying, Elliptony Hut? Didn't you say there was another segment coming of Candid and Robin's uh, review of Ken's book, The Nazi Occult? That was in Consulting Occultists, wasn't it? Well, we've now... Uh, left the occult subject matter per se, but there's still one bit more of uh, Nazi-related wackadoodleness uh, to discuss, and that is better suited for the Elliptony Hut, and that is the legends of Nazi UFOs, saucers, and hollow earths. Now, although a lot of this was elaborated earlier, uh, we've touched on the fact a bit earlier, Ken, that hollow earth mythology uh, was something that was in the air in uh, interwar and wartime Germany, and how did that enter the consciousness of uh, any actual Nazi leaders, if it did? The Hohlwelt Lehre, or theory of the Hollow Earth, probably never got as far as, even as, as far as Himmler, who is sort of your, your dumping ground for crazy in the Nazi hierarchy. Um, he, may have, he may have been one of those guys who's like, well, Hollow Earth, that's a little crazy, don't you think, Feisthor? And uh, moved on <laughs> from that. But there is at least one test that was, and I don't think it's provably made, but I think it's not ridiculous to assert that at one point, while they were testing radar on the Rugen Island, which is in uh, the Baltic, that someone said, hey, see if you can point that to the other side of the Hollow Earth and bounce the signal off and find the British fleet in the Atlantic. And that could either be a genuine thing that some guy in the Luftwaffe who was a convert to the whole Veltlera 
uh, believed, or it could have been a misreporting, either on purpose and propagandistic or accidental and sloppy, of someone trying to bounce radar waves off the heaviside layer or off the uh, Van Allen belts or, or whatever sort of high electrical energy they, they might have postulated existed up there in the troposphere. Or it might have just been a complete urban legend that came out of the post-war uh, collapse of everything uh, Nazi, including the Hollow Earth theory. So I think that the Rugen Island experiment is as close as you get to any actual Nazi involvement in the Hollow Earth, although Lord knows the post-1945 uh, Nazi mythos and uh, Black Sun mythos is... It, it comes back to the Hollow Earth like you come back to a girlfriend you know is bad for you. I, I think that they... They just can't keep themselves away because it's so exciting and fun and subversive of everything rational. Now, there's a very famous case in Canada in the 80s of a Holocaust denier and neo-Nazi named Ernst Zundel, who was put on trial uh, for the crime of spreading false news, mm -hmm. uh, but it was really a, a hate crimes prosecution. And it always struck me, even at the time, that it was odd that he was being taken so seriously, because uh, it turns out that among his other publications, he's not just denying the Holocaust, but he's also invested heavily in hollow earth theory and Nazi UFO theory, and that it would have been uh, more effective to tackle whatever psychic uh, poison he was uh, spewing by ridicule than by giving him this sort of uh, martyrdom style platform. So where, at what point uh, after the war, does this kooky fringe mythology begin to take hold of people like Ernst Zundel? I think that the people like, like Ernst Zundel, um, who is all about the Antarctic expedition and about Nazi UFOs and all of that sort of stuff, I, I think that they sort of pick up on it at the same time that the Hollow Earth sort of comes roaring back in American pop culture in the 1940s and 50s when the uh, the Shaver mysteries are appearing in Amazing Stories. Ray Palmer publishes them, and they're written by, um, I think it's Richard Shaver. He's a guy who claimed that he was kidnapped by uh, mad Amazons and tortured by Deros and all kinds of, had all kinds of excitement and adventures there in, in the Hollow Earth. A series of entirely plausible narratives. Exactly, yeah. The, the, um, uh, the, the, the notion was that uh, he had all these exciting adventures in the Hollow Earth, and the publisher of Amazing Stories, a guy named Ray Palmer, who is himself quite a piece of work and uh, it may be a topic for the how much did he believe and how much is he being a carnival barker about it but the uh, but but this sort of captured the attention of weirdos right as the Nazi regime is collapsing the Shaver mysteries run in, in amazing stories really as, as, as I think as a methadone for World War two where it's like well no more exciting adventures in wacky foreign lands. Oh, look, someone's having exciting adventures in the wackiest of foreign lands, the Hollow Earth. Right, and it's not the only time someone who is working for the pulp magazines had something too crazy to publish as fiction and therefore said it was true and created a cult around it. Right, yeah, that 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 is a, a very common pattern. And then the, the Hollow Earth again came back in uh, the 60s with the, sort of the beginning of, of, the, uh, <laughs> of the collapse of reason in uh, the Western world with a book by a guy called Ray Bernard who was talking about, and he sort of just recycles everyone else's Hollow Earth book into a new Hollow Earth book and adds the uh, Richard Byrd quote about the danger from over the poles uh, and it, it comes up with all kinds of meretricious nonsense about Arctic and Antarctic explorers. And that's tying in again with 
both the irrationality of the 60s, but also it's tying in with the new explorations of Antarctica and the new uh, explorations of the Arctic that are going on with the Nautilus sailing underneath the ice caps. And I think also, in in a sense, into that Richard Byrd uh, identified or caused concern about what might be coming out of the poles. And you see that again in uh, the movie The Thing, for example, or other, or other stuff like that. I think The Hollow Earth sort of feeds into that ongoing social unease and becomes a big uh, meme or memeplex. And again, that's the same time that you see that second wave of neo-Nazism that, that sort of pops up in the 1960s as the first generation to be really too young to have understood World War II shows up and says, man, that swastika looks pretty awesome. I wonder what it's about. So this is an example, basically, of history repeating as farce. Yes, or, or perhaps farce repeating as even more hilarious farce. But in this particular case, yeah, I think that the sort of play iconography of the Nazi movement, which is obviously the sort of thing that the book The Nazi Occult is about, or that any of our role-playing games are, if, if we encourage the shooting of Nazis as a um, uh, as a wholesome activity for, for boys and girls of all ages, which I think we all do, that sort of play extends down through the crazy sphere and becomes a really, really, you know, bent cosplay for a lot of people that are like, well, I really like dressing up like Nazis and I really like being crazy. If only I could combine them. Look, I can. Right. And certainly if one has a bunch of neo-Nazis on one's hands, one hopes that they look at the situation and go, well, the only way we're coming back is if saucers fly out of the hollow earth. Uh, that's actually, I think, somewhat better than let's start a new political party that uh, has all of these... Uh, coded messages and pretend just to be a hard right party in Europe and let's come back to power in the real world. No, I, I certainly encourage any any neo-Nazis listening to um, uh, to explore the hollow earth to the absolute limit of your abilities to do so. I think that, uh, I, I mean, again, as an American looking sort of across the border at the, at the Zundel case, it, you know, we, our fringe people are are laughed at or kept on the, on the internet where they belong, I guess it was pre-internet, but still... The notion of giving this guy a megaphone, it, it strikes me the same sort of danger that, that happens when people made a big scream and deal out of David Duke in America. It's like this guy literally can't fill a decent-sized auditorium with people who want to listen to him. Why is he on TV all the time? Why is his name everywhere? And I, I guess that that's the same sort of, uh, sort of you know, notion of we have to treat this seriously in order to shame it, whereas just shaming them seems like a good shortcut from my perspective. I wonder if that this had come to light in the internet era, you know, at the time it was, you had to subscribe to his zine in order to find out that he had all these crazy beliefs. You had to mm. make contact with him. And now you would just look up his website and you would click through enough to see that he was a risible character rather than uh, one of genuine menace. So that, you know, maybe tied up in the communications availability of that era where it was yeah. possible to see the the one layer of despicable craziness and not succeed in drilling down to the underlying level of uh, ridiculous craziness. And, and it works the other way, too. I mean, I, I picked up two books that Zundel published, uh, and I hasten to add, I picked them up used at a sort of a yard sale happening on the sidelines of the Printer's Row Book Fair in Chicago. You had a, a sage grass ceremony to cleanse them? Uh, well, I, I had the ceremony of taking them and putting them on my shelf next to all the other crazies so they can't get out. It's like the Phantom Zone in my office. Um, but when you look at, at, at his books on Nazi flying saucers and the Hollow Earth, 
you get the waft of real vileness as well as real craziness off of them. So I think it, it goes both directions. And I think that there is an argument to be made, though it's not one that I would make, that by publishing hilarious, interesting, exciting, you know, sexy in his mind books about flying saucers or Antarctica, he is sort of providing a gateway drug to the harder drug of Holocaust denial on the grounds that if you are believing this, maybe you'll believe in the Holocaust denial, not like those blinkered historians, scientists, and eyewitnesses. So it, we see that there's clearly a lost cause appeal to the sort of uh, twisted losers who uh, want to set themselves up in neo-Nazi garb. Is there another appeal to uh, can one be uh, interested as a possible believer in this stuff without being tainted by it? Or is there basically the two levels of either you are a nut bar believer or you are a, a mocking rationalist who wants to incorporate these into your crazy pulp genre stuff that uh, allows you to then uh, shoot some space Nazis. I, I think people can certainly believe in the hollow earth without having the tiniest shred of Nazism around them. I, I, it, that's not like, um, you know, the Aryan homeland of Thule, which I think is pretty much, um, <laughs> that ship has sailed uh, for the north. But I think you can believe certainly in, um, in the hollow earth all you want. And there's more than enough crazy dinosaurs and, and floating gas clouds and, and Edmund Haley uh, of Haley Comet fame uh, floating around there in the hollow earth. But that is, you can keep that isolated from the Nazis. Even the Shaver mysteries don't have a direct Nazi tie. And so you can believe in Deros and, and crazy, real-wielding Amazons all you want without it being all Nazified. I think that if you believe that the Nazis built UFOs that are flying around, you are probably moving a little bit closer to one or another kind of, uh, I don't know, d disability, I guess, is the polite way to put it. But again, you might be using that as a method in your own mind of critiquing the United States government, because if the United States government is covering up Nazi UFOs, that means the United States government is behaving in far too Nazified a way for you. And while that's inane, it's certainly a political discourse that I wouldn't want to read, you know, out of court as evil or vile. It's just, you know, horribly misguided. Right. And one of the wider threads of, of ufology is the theory that the uh, mysterious craft that people are seeing are not alien in nature, but that they are, in fact, incredibly sophisticated pieces of technology that are being hidden from the public by a conspiratorial government. And you get different crossovers of that because you also there's a thread that says they're but they're based on alien technology. Um, and so I suppose one could use the putative existence of Nazi UFOs as part of that uh, narrative. Is, is that, in fact, a, a thread of uh, non-Nazi belief in Nazi UFOs? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The people who are most concerned with Nazi UFOs, certainly in the modern era, are people who, I imagine, fancy themselves as people broadly of the left, because they are using it either as a internal symbology for their own subconscious, or they're using it as a propaganda statement to indict the uh, the current power structure as fundamentally identical to or a successor state to or tainted by uh, its exposure to Nazis. And given that the power structure did, in fact, you know, whitewash Werner von Braun, it's kind of hard for us defenders of the power structure to say that they're entirely off the beam when they also say that we're covering up real saucers 
and um, uh, keeping uh, a Nazi uh, feeding pen somewhere underneath a mountain in New Mexico. So you do not see uh, a crossover between this thread of UFOs as a secret military technology within the black helicopter crowd, that it's a, a different bunch of people who are paranoid about the government? I think the black helicopter crowd is a, a capacious enough crowd, or perhaps a changeable enough crowd, that it can occupy both extremes of the political uh, spectrum simultaneously. The political spectrum famously breaking down once you get very far beyond the center. Uh, black helicopter crowd contains just as many people who were paranoid about George W. Bush rounding up everyone and putting them in camps as they were paranoid about Barack Obama rounding everyone up and putting them in camps. I think what's exciting to them is being paranoid about being rounded up and put in a camp and not necessarily the, you know, R or D after the name of the uh, blank-faced man in black who's going to do it to you. So it, it sounds like these are people that I think you might be more accurate to say who transcend traditional concepts of, of left and right uh, than being people who are oriented uh, more to to the left. Well, I think that there's there's a there's a broad it's a big tent. There's uh, people who see themselves as being of the left. There's people who see themselves as being of the right. There are people who you know loudly proclaim that they're independent of all earthly politics. And so you know you you can have figures like our our buddy Nick Bedgich, who is you know a, a man of the left and is very concerned about harp and other things. And you can have people like your uh, various uh, right wing conspiracy mavens in the in the Ron Paul camp. Who were all, uh, you know, just one, you know, step away from stockpiling gold and shotgun ammunition. But those tropes are so common and so powerful that you can you you get you can be put on a little monorail and, and go back and forth between them, like Alex Jones does. I mean, that that's a guy that uh, that has you know made a fairly uh, a lucrative reputation of playing both sides against the middle, and whether he's you know, what his individual politics are seems to be relatively changeable and depending, again, like I say, more as a reaction to the, the current power structure than it does anything else. Right. It starts with the paranoia and you have to define uh, if one is uh, either paranoid by inclination or by choice, you have to pick whatever the current power structure is and align the differences between the different wings of the power structure in order to have your full crunchy, paranoid existence. Yeah. So uh, to what extent is, uh, you know, if you were to populate a pie chart uh, with the uh, number of contemporary conspiratorialists who are focused on Nazi UFOs and the hollow earth, is this a tiny sliver? Is this a big ongoing theme? What is the uh, mind share that this uh, mythology is occupying? I think the Nazi UFOs are, are really productive. Joseph Farrell, who has written a, a number of the best books on the topic. Uh, there's a guy named Henry Stevens who's got another batch. They at least form a active sub-community that all reprint each other's uh, hearsay and and turn it into, in some cases, uh, really delightful uh, works of metafiction. And and I think that, that that's that's a fairly strong little subculture, at least within ufology. I don't know to what extent ufology is as... Uh, superpowered as it was back in the 90s. I think ufology may have sort of fallen off uh, in, in the 21st century as we all got bigger things to worry about uh, coming from the skies than UFOs. But the but within ufology, I think the Nazi UFO subset is still pretty strong. And certainly people like um, uh, Hoagland, who talk about uh, the face on Mars and all manner of other things, find it useful to import 
the notion of a secret Nazi corps within NASA that is building UFOs and or faking moon landings to be something that they want to put into their books that seemingly wouldn't have anything to do with that. So I guess on the grounds of is it spreading itself to other crazy memes, I think the Nazi UFOs are doing pretty well. The Hollow Earth is always pretty much the redheaded stepchild because even crazy people look askance at the Hollow Earth a lot of times. So for the Hollow Earth to, to come back big, I think you really have to have made a, a commitment in your heart to, to being nuts. Right. It's one of those things that was wrecked by the age of exploration, that it's uh, you, you have to work harder and harder to believe in the physical existence of uh, something that nobody has uh, has found than you would have a hundred years ago. Now, there's there's plenty of people who believe in the in the secret underground complexes and secret tunnels, and I think that answers a lot of the same, you know, primal yen to go underground and fight monsters that that we do with twenty sided dice. Um, and and so that again ties in with the secret government complex type stuff. So it's been reskinned in a more plausible way. Yeah, and but when you actually get and when you you know have, have got gray aliens that you keep down there, it's sort of like having bureaus who live in caverns full of rill and uh, and lead you to the to the inner sun, the the black sun. But it the hollow earth, I think, is is uh, is is a fringe of a fringe. Sadly, uh, you would certainly, I personally enjoy uh, the hollow earth people because they. They have that great sort of uh, Victorian sensibility about them. Like you say, they're they're resolutely ignoring everything that we know, uh, and are you know charting their own their own physics, their own geology, their own uh, plate tectonics, everything else. And I, I just admire that kind of ambition. Right, and, and once you filter out the, the neo-Nazi strain of it, there's a sense of uh, wonder about it that's sort of uh, uh, refreshing and. That kind of removes the paranoia from it that it sounds like something uh, you can yearn to have people discover because it would be really cool to find a imaginary place that turns out not to be imaginary full of dinosaurs. Who who doesn't want that except for right, those of yeah. us who do not want to be eaten by dinosaurs? Yeah, and the odds of it being found underneath Toronto are, I guess, pretty slim. So, you know, it'll be found in a part of Canada where the dinosaurs would have to walk through an icy waste to get to you, right? Uh, exactly so. Well, now that you're mentioning icy wastes, I'm uh, thinking uh, once more of how we've had the air conditioning in our respective apartments turned off for an hour, and I think it's uh, time to put this podcast to bed and go and crank them up. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Find us between the House of Bread and Pit Dwellers Town at KennethRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>